Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Meridian Wallace is pursuing her PhD in ornithology at the University of Chicago. When she falls in love with a brilliant physics professor, a lifetime of sacrifices begins. Her now husband is recruited to New Mexico to take part in a mysterious wartime endeavor. And Meridian reluctantly defers her own plans to join him. It's not until years later when she meets a Vietnam veteran who opens her eyes to how the world is changing, Meridian realizes just how much she has given up. In her debut novel, The Atomic Weight of Love, Elizabeth Church examines the sacrifices made by the wives who followed their husbands to Los Alamos during World War II's Manhattan Project, and how those women would redefine and reclaim themselves during the tumultuous decades that followed. Elizabeth Church practiced law for more than 30 years, focusing on mental health and constitutional law issues. She says when her husband's premature death from cancer taught her the brevity of life, she paid off his medical bills and then walked away from the law to pursue her original dream of writing. And this book's the result of her efforts. A dream come true, says age 60, proof that's never too late to pursue one's dreams. Uh, she's written extensively for legal publications, scientific journals. Her short story, Skin Deep, won first prize in Literal Lattes of uh, uh, 2001 Fiction Contest, and Lying with Dogs was published in Natural Bridge in 2002. Atomic Weight of Love is her first novel. She joins us uh, for the program. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, so congratulations, and as you say, uh, Proof of Dream can come true at age 60, the book published. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I had originally planned to hide the fact that I was age 60, <laughs> but I've been told I'm supposed to celebrate that, so I'm trying very hard to do so. <laughs> very, very good. Uh, and, and yeah, it's worth celebrating, and it's getting uh, the great reviews, and so, so yeah, congratulations. Um, uh, before we jump into the, to the book, um, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about your childhood at must have been extraordinary and ordinary, probably the same time, uh, growing up in Los Alamos? Well, you know, it's. It, I think I was like all kids. You have no perspective because you have such limited experience in life. So I didn't realize how unusual um, my childhood was in many ways until I left Los Alamos. Um, you know, it, 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 my father was a research chemist, and he was drafted to work on the Manhattan Project. And then my mother was a biologist, and... and she she eventually joined him in Los Alamos. Um, I was I was surrounded by scientists. Um, you know, across the street, uh, PhD mathematician who was a woman, a chemist, uh, physicist one house up, another chemist chemist and astrophysicist, and uh, you know, just a community that was, for obvious reasons, steeped in science and um, and in education and books and all of those things that come with um, a massive number of PhDs. So, again, it wasn't until I left Los Alamos for college that I realized just how different the community was. You've described Los Alamos uh, as a, an isolated university town on steroids. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> and uh, another place I'm reading an, an essay you did for your your publisher's website, uh, Algonquin Press, you say that this is a unique community where physicists successfully challenged the accuracy of police radar guns <laughs> and parents carefully designed neighborhoods so their children could walk to school without once having to cross the street. I guess if you get that many scientists together, that you have some benefits. You do, you do. And you also have people who, who regularly challenge absolutely everything. Um, and because they're bright, um, they also assume they can take up any profession successfully. So I also experienced to some degree um, Los Alamos scientists 
as an attorney um, by talking with other attorneys who had represented them, for example, in divorces. Um, and they they knew better than the attorneys often. <laughs> oh, oh, really? <laughs> so uh, a downside, fairly good. Yes, there are some downsides. There yeah, are, yeah. definitely, definitely. Tell me about Los Alamos, the natural place, and some of this appears in the in the in the book. Uh, so, growing up, uh, isolated place, but but beautiful, I imagine. Absolutely beautiful, and and the book is in part a love song to to northern New Mexico, to the mountains of northern New Mexico. And and I will say, when I wrote the book, I was living in Albuquerque, and I had been there for over forty years. By the time I finished writing the book. I, I knew I had to move back to Los Alamos, so I actually came back after having been gone for that many decades. And in part, I did it because I wanted to be able to get out on the hiking trails while my decrepit knees would still permit me to do that. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's quite beautiful. It's a landscape that um, I think grows on people. Um, and the altitude is something most people don't take into account. It surprises many people. I've been traveling for the last couple months promoting the book, and people are surprised that, uh, for example, we get snow in New Mexico um, and things like that. So it, it is all of those things with the nature that that's involved. Um, I walk my dog very early in the mornings, and I have to literally watch for... Uh, cougars, we have those, um, bears, all of those kinds of things. So it's, um, again, it, it was important to me to kind of celebrate um, the beauty of northern New Mexico and perhaps clue a lot of people in to that beauty. Uh, by the way, uh, how had things changed since you went away? You were in Albuquerque for many years, and then you went back and living there now. How has Los Alamos changed? I, you know, it, there are, of course, many things that haven't changed, and, and that is scientists who are very much like Alden, uh, my main character, the, the physicist in that. Um, social skills are not at the top of their list in terms of development. <laughs> um, but I think one of the biggest changes I've seen is my parents' generation were the generation that had been so um, dramatically affected by the Great Depression. And so they were extremely frugal people. Um, I think people in Los Alamos are still rather frugal, but they will now by themselves uh, BMWs or, or very nice cars. In my in my parents' time, that would have been a showy thing that you would never have done. Mm-hmm. And part of this, of course, is and we'll get into this to talk about the book as well. Is that Los Alamos was a secret place, right? At, at, in the 1940s. Yes, yes, and and actually, that is you know you, you've reminded me of another difference that I'm seeing. When I grew up um, in Los Alamos, things you know had gradually become more open. Um, because the war was over and the secret was out and here was this place. And what I'm seeing now is increased security because of 9-11. And so there are checkpoints around town that didn't exist while I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Now, you you got a a real good education, as did, I guess, most of the kids in in Los Alamos, in part because of, of one of the major themes of the book, right, that the wives... Los you know, I, absolutely. I very much agree. I, um, I, I, I describe it to people as a private school education in a public school. Um, and I, 
I practiced a lot of education law during during my stint as a misbegotten lawyer, and one of the things I was seeing, I thought, was the effect of the women's movement on schools, because those very talented women who used to have so few options, be a nurse, be a social worker, be a teacher, um, were no longer going into those professions, and so the schools were hurting as a result of, of the shift in women's lives. Yeah, it's certainly true. Uh, um, I wonder, let's, could I have you read the prologue uh, to the book? It introduce us to, oh, sure. to Meridian. Sure. And uh, you, well, well, I'll set this up by saying that uh, I've learned this through this essay that I've been reading, um, that these women that you encountered in your childhood in Los Alamos um, kind of piqued your curiosity, right? And after you left for college... According to you, you wondered what could these women have done and been? What more could your mother have accomplished had she been given the opportunities that uh, you were finding as a result of the women's movement? Uh, so this the prologue is, this is Meridian at, uh, in her 80s, I think. Yes, yes, in her late 80s. Um, so I'll go ahead and start. Um, in early January of 2011, 4,500 red-winged blackbirds fell dead from the Arkansas skies. A few days later, 500 more birds plummeted to the earth, and their broken bodies covered an entire quarter-mile stretch of the highway near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Some thought that one bird, confused by bad weather, led the others to their deaths. Others blamed pesticides. I suspect there were also those who felt God had struck the birds from the sky in some sort of apocalyptic fever. Eventually, wildlife experts determined that the birds had died of blunt force trauma. Startled by the explosion of celebratory New, York, New Year's fireworks, the birds, who had poor night vision, flew into power lines, telephone poles, houses, mailboxes, and tree branches. Our exuberance killed them. I'm watching the birds still, paying attention, observant, ever the ornithologist. Stories such as these keep me awake at night when I cannot escape the beating of my 87-year-old heart the constancy of it, the weariness of it. I cannot say with scientific certainty how many times over these many decades it kept or deviated from its rhythm, how many times it catapulted with love or capitulated in grief. Maybe Alden could have calculated those numbers for me. Across the universes of so many academic blackboards, he flung like stardust numbers and symbols, the language of mathematics and the elegant formula of physics. He dissected unseen worlds, galaxies I could only begin to imagine. One of the scientists who created the first atomic bomb, Alden knew the weight of invisible neutrons, could predict the flight path of escaping electrons. He could conceive of the existence of such phantasms and then release their formidable destructive power. But Alden never knew how to measure the weight of a sigh. He could not predict the moment when the petal of a spent rose would release and descend. Alden could not tell me when a screech owl would cry out from a darkened pine bough outside my bedroom window and insinuate itself into my dreams. I first loved him because he taught me the flight of a bird, precisely how it happens, how it is possible. Lift, wing structure and shape, the concepts of wing loading, drag, thrust the perfectly allotted tasks of each differently shaped feather, the hollowness of bones to reduce weight, 
to overcome gravity. I was too young to realize that what I really yearned to know was why birds take flight and why, sometimes, they refuse. This is not Oppenheimer's story. It is not that of Edward Teller or Niels Bohr, Fermi or Feynman. This is not the story of the creation of the atomic bomb or of Los Alamos, the birthplace of the bomb. It is not even Alden's story. Someone else has told their stories, will tell their stories. This is my story, the story of a woman who accompanied the bomb's birth and tried to fly in its aftermath. That's the prologue to The Atomic Weight of Love, a novel by Elizabeth Church. We have Elizabeth Church with us for the hour here on Axis Utah. So this is Meridian's story, uh, someone who tried to fly in the aftermath of, of the bomb. So it's, it's the story also, I think, of a uh, collective story of women, especially women of, of Los Alamos. Um, so tell me a little bit more about Meridian. Meridian uh, is ends up at the University of Chicago, very ambitious, and this is a sacrifice for her family, right? Her, her father's died much. young. Her, and, mo- her mother has literally cleaned homes to help her to to make her way to the University of Chicago. And Meridian is quite bright. She's received scholarships, and and she's been encouraged in her desire to become an ornithologist. She's attending classes with mostly males, because the hard sciences certainly at that time were classrooms that were filled with mostly males. So she's quite often the only female there, and she's very much feeling the outcast. She's not a a wealthy sorority girl. She doesn't have money for nice clothes, and her desire is to focus almost none-like on her studies, and that is precisely what she does. Then she meets uh, Alden, who's her uh, her professor, and their their romance, their you know their their eventual marriage is based on this. Uh, it's a very much intellectual uh, equality, right? They see in each other intellectual equals and and excitement, intellectual excitement. I think. Absolutely, I I, I think in a way they were an o- oasis for each other. Um, people who could share conversations. She was curious. She wanted to learn from him from his discipline, and she wanted to stretch her mind to match his. And um, so there, it, I, I think I, I have had some women not understand the attraction to a man of great intellect. I, I have that myself, um, to, to be pushed and challenged in that way. And their, their courtship is mostly one of conversation and the delight of that kind of conversation that happens uh, for some people, especially in the early days of a relationship. Uh, how much is this atypical for the time? Uh, you know, they're very much, uh, you know, gender-defined roles at this this time. Is Meridian trying to escape that by, by being think, with Alden? I think she she has not previously limited herself as, as stringently as perhaps other girls of her time might have. I think uh, her her father has early on considered considered her quite bright and wanted her to uh, not hide from the fact that she was bright, and he's never mollycoddled her. Um, and so I think in some ways she's a tiny bit ahead of the curve, um, but she's also ultimately 
not able to escape the bonds of the culture of the time. Mm-hmm. And the plan, of course, is she's going to interrupt her studies for a year, maybe, right, and then run on to Cornell or whatever she's going to do. Of course, that's not what happens. No, and at at that point, she does try to negotiate with her husband. Um, And that is one theme of the novel for me, is how much negotiation occurs in relationships now uh, that, that didn't occur then. Um, the the fact that women have choices now causes relationships to be far more negotiated than they used to, with far fewer assumptions about whose career takes the front seat and whose takes the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so negotiation now and not so much then, I guess societal norms, societal pressure, that's why they weren't negotiated? I think so, and I think actually... Um, as kind of happens with Meridian in the Los Alamos culture, when she tries to step away from typical roles of motherhood and homemaking and tries to do things slightly differently, even in the context, uh, the atmosphere of other highly educated women, she's, she's pushing the boundaries to do that. Um, they have, she would say, they have succumbed, um, but they would say they have reasonably adapted and that they are fulfilling the traditional concept of of a woman's a woman's reason for being. Mm-hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I wanted to talk more about Meridian. Obviously, uh, talk more about your history as well. You says you as you were writing this, you thought a, a great deal about your mother, your and her mother, and your aunts, and the women who come before you, um, and the differences. And, and Meridian, you say, comes between, you, you wanted to bridge the gap between your mother's experiences and, and your own. Um, I guess that's why Meridian's 87 when she, you wanted to bridge a lot of history here. Um, yes. Let's uh, take a break, come back more with Elizabeth Church. The Atomic Weight of Love is the uh, title of the novel. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Lots of people think resilience is an individual characteristic, but it's also a team characteristic. Teams with resilience don't blame each other when they fail. They use failure as a learning opportunity. Blame is found in the system, not an individual. Learning is found in individuals, and learning is what creates resilience. Team resilience can lead to greater productivity. It also leads to greater innovation. People are more likely to risk innovation when they know the team will back them up no matter what. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Elizabeth Church. Her debut novel is titled The Atomic Weight of Love. The central character is Meridian Wallace. She's pursuing her Ph.D. in ornithology at the University of Chicago. When she falls in love with a brilliant physics professor, a lifetime of sacrifices begins. Her now husband is recruited to New Mexico to uh, work on the Manhattan Project, as she learns later. And it's not until years later when she meets a Vietnam veteran who opens her eyes to how the world is changing that Meridian realizes just how much she has uh, given up. 
Elizabeth Church's uh, novel looks at how the women of Los Alamos uh, redefined and reclaimed themselves during the tumultuous decades that followed as well. Elizabeth Church grew up in Los Alamos. Her father worked on the Manhattan Project. So before the break, I, I noted that uh, as you wrote, you say you thought a good deal about your mother, her mother, your aunts, all the women who came before uh, before you. Uh, some autobiographical details appear in the novel. Uh, I believe just as Meridian's father dies at age 43, uh, so your I think your mother's father, was it that true, died at 43? Actually, my Are, father. Oh, did. Your, your father. My father okay. Did. Yes, yes. So, um, um, they say first novels tend to have a lot of autobiographical material. I, I suspect all of my novels will, in many ways. I, 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 I think all of my characters have shavings of myself in them, or they wouldn't be believable, and they wouldn't make the reader feel, which is, of course, my goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's uh, you know tragic. Forty three, of course, very young. But your mother, I think, uh, expressed to you that uh, gave her a, a certain freedom to to re- redefine herself. It, it did, and um, we would we would talk about that later in her life, in particular after my husband died, very young, and and so we had these parallels in our lives. So hers was a bit different in that she was left with four four children, and I don't have children, um, but I did say to her, uh, she actually eventually traveled all over the world, she was, she was a formidable spirit, and, and always had a very lively intellectual curiosity about life, and I said to her, you, you wouldn't have traveled, you wouldn't have done all the things you've done, and, and she fully agreed with that, she fully agreed with mm. that, um, his death surprisingly opened up the world for her. Uh, was she, how did she feel about that? Did, uh, you know, obviously that probably would have wanted her husband with her, but with the new freedoms because he was gone. I think, you know, it's funny. She, she and I would actually laugh because she would say to me, you know, I'm not sure we could have stayed married um, because he was very much mired in the um, paternalistic kind of culture. And she changed um, she became stronger because she had to, because she had these children. She had to deal with um, job concerns, health insurance, all of those things that, that, that went away when he died. And she actually got a National Science Foundation grant and took herself four summers in a row, hauling various kids and combination of us, with her to the University of Montana, and she got a master's degree that way. <laughs> so she did that late 40s, early 50s, which was a, a huge thing for a woman of her time, and very brave. Yeah, that, that, that sounds very brave. It sounds like a very strong woman. Um, you you had to face this. Your, your husband died uh, when you were in your 50s, right? Yeah, I, I was just 50. Um, yes, yes. And... Um, uh, no, it, it was not working out the way I had planned, certainly, mm-hmm. or that, that any of us assume life will work out. Mm-hmm. But it was an enormous wake-up call to me, and it was I, I tried to find some way to give his death even a, a tiny ounce of meaning, and the only way I could see to do that was not to die the way he had, mm-hmm. with enormous regrets about what I hadn't done. Oh, oh, he did. So that's why that's why you say that you it brought you up short. That, that life is short. 
It did very much so. I watched him struggle with, um, as much as he was in many ways unwilling to admit that he was dying, um, he knew what he would no longer do. Part of what he, he was a lawyer and a photographer, and he said to me, there are so many more photos in my head. And all I could think was, I always wanted to write, there are so many books in my head, and I can't, I cannot die the same way. So you made even even with that with that new realization that's a pretty brave decision isn't it you you uh you paid off the medical bills and then you quit the law and jumped into writing brave or foolhardy depending on your perspective <laughs> but uh because um certainly you know I, my mother was still alive at the time and when i announced that i was going to go without a job and and no income, and maybe ultimately dip into retirement. She was, of course, horrified. This daughter of the Depression thought I was doing probably one of the stupidest things I'd ever done. Um, but I, I assured her that I was absolutely certain this was the route I had to take. And so, yes, there are still many nights of insomnia for me when I think, oh, what have I done? <laughs> but... Um, I also have told people if I park my little refrigerator box, should I become homeless out out behind the uh, public library, I can still get free Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. And I will die with a smile on my face because I did this. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably the right choice. Um, I want to uh, go back to Los Alamos and the women of Los Alamos, the, the, the wives. You say that this book, Atomic Weight of Love, is not the story of your parents' marriage, but it is the story of... Uh, of the the marriages, the women, many of the women of of Los Alamos, who this wasn't their plan. They didn't set out for this life. They reluctantly followed their husbands to to Los Alamos. And there's a sense of, I guess, sacrifice. And that's not unique to to these women as well. It's kind of bound up in in the role of a woman, isn't it, up to a certain point? Maybe still. I don't know, a a sense of that I'm sacrificing for the greater good. Well, I, I, yes, I, I think a sacrifice was assumed, um, if not required. And the women truly were supposed to find fulfillment in children and in keeping a nice home. And, you know, it mattered that, that the other women saw that your home was well-kept and that you had things, you know, well-ordered and all of those kinds of aspects of life. Um, I think it's still a question um, in terms of sacrifice in relationships from either direction, from male or female. And that is one of the the questions I've asked as I've written the novel and, and then subsequently talked so much about it with people is, when is sacrifice noble? And is it always noble? And I think the assumption then was that it was noble for women to sacrifice. And I really question that concept because for me, if, if sacrifice is not both conscious and willing, then it can't be noble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's one of the questions I'm, I've asked in the novel. Where are the limits? Where are the limits to adaptation? When does adaptation cross over, is cease to be admirable, cease to be a lovely Darwinian way of survival, and instead turn into self-abnegation. Mm-hmm. That, that is the key question, isn't it, that uh, I think most people in a, in a marriage have to ask themselves, especially women. 
yes. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I was on the West Coast a few weeks ago um, going up and down to, to bookstores, and I had a younger man come up to me afterwards and, and, and say he was supporting his wife, who was an artist, and um, now I'd made him wonder if that was really a noble sacrifice or not. Ah. So, of course, immediately I thought, oh, geez, I'm going around destroying marriages. But <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was more the idea that... I thought, we have changed, because here is a man coming to me asking me this question about himself. And so there's clear progress in terms of male-female relationships and how we, how we negotiate them now. But I think I would just hammer in, if it's conscious, that's, that's for all of us, are we consciously making these choices, or are we just falling into patterns? You know, the pattern I fell into of being an attorney, even though I didn't want to be an attorney, and not taking the risk of, of dropping it all in writing. That's a pattern, an unconscious pattern. Hmm. Uh, Meridian and, and Alden fall into this, right? Uh, kind of representative of a, a lot of marriages at the time, especially there at Los Alamos. What was going to be an exciting intellectual journey uh, devolved into something else. It did. It did. I think he, um, it, there's one point where she talks about the towhee bird and how the male towhee bird sings, and I forget the exact percentage, but when he's courting, the male bird sings like 75, 80% of the time. And then after he's successfully made it, it drops down to about 5%. <laughs> and she's comparing that to her husband, Alden. He had charmed, he had done what he needed to, to attract her. And once he had her, he went back into his interior intellectual life where he sits in the chair at night and reads and thinks she should do the same thing and criticizes what she watches on television. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, the long marriage that, that can become boring and lazy emotionally on both sides. I wonder if you'd read another passage for us. This is on, uh, starting on page 120. Okay. Um, it's the, You're going to tell me when to stop. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, if you'll uh, just start, uh, it's the uh, bottom paragraph in 120. Oh, I see. Okay, so just the end and, of the section. Then the okay. full, full page and, and over. Uh, I want to set this up by, there's an intense scene before this, um, in which um, Meridian has invited uh, a couple over, and they're, they're not in the same social strata. The, the man is a security guard. He's not a scientist. Uh, Belle becomes a good friend, the the woman. But Alden, um, he's offended that uh, that Meridian would invite these people over because he he just doesn't respect them intellectually. And so there's a, a kind of a, a tense scene, and and he's sort of asserting control. You know, he's he's the man. Uh, he's commanding her, don't don't invite them over again. Yes, don't waste his time. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is. Um, it kind of indicates where you know where their marriage has come to. Uh, then, very interesting, you you, uh, you you get into Meridian and her ornithology uh, studies. She goes out and studies, in this case, crows. Yes, and she's she's um, adapted. She cannot band birds or or do many of the things that that a a a rigid ornithologist would do, scientifically speaking. So she's observing communal behavior among crows in a canyon near her home. And she's keeping journals and trying to maintain her her scientific 
aspirations in that way. By, by the way, before you jump in, one <laughs> Alden says that uh, I think it was talking about Belle. She only has a bachelor's degree. He's he's, <laughs> he's looking down his <laughs> nose. This is a town full of PhDs. And and uh, Meridian t- t- says to herself, "Well, I only has a bachelor's degree. Her plan was to get her PhD, but she hasn't got it." Right, right. So he's 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 um, inadvertently he's insulting his own wife. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. So the, the, here's this uh, the passage. Okay. Um, I went back to the canyon and the crows. It was the only way I knew to hold on. Alden had spoken of Butch's lack of academic rigor. I didn't have that either, not in the way I wanted or that was expected of me by my fellow biologists, not without being able to ban the birds and track individuals. Nevertheless, I told myself I would make do, my father's prescription always resident in the back rooms of my mind. By October, the mornings began more crisply, but the afternoon sun was still strong, viable, even in the deep reaches of the canyon. I was watching more than 20 crows sun themselves. They burrowed into the soft dirt, lowering their bellies into the warm soil, and then they spread their black wings to gather the heat. They entered a state of apparent torpor, languid with with the sun. They panted, beaks open. It looked as though they'd been decimated by a single lightning bolt, but the snap of a twig beneath my boot sent them all instantly upright, vigilant. There was one crow I found easily recognizable. He had a withered right foot that hung, bent, and locked at the joint just below his belly. I was impressed with his adaptability, the way he hopped, took off, and landed without wavering. Still, he had a diminished ability to feed himself adequately, to carry heavier pieces of foodstuff. I saw other crows occasionally attentive, feeding him. He made it. I saw him engaging in alloprening with another crow. He edged up to the female, used his beak to pick through her feathers to remove parasites, in particular from her head, a place she could not herself reach. I saw them so engaged in the trees, on the ground. At one point, The female used a downed limb to increase her height and make grooming of the handicapped crow's head easier. They were sweet, intimate moments, and I would catch myself grinning with the joy of watching the pair cement their bond. I thought about the trust inherent in permitting another to groom, and, in the case of crows, to permit a sharp beak to plunge beneath feathers that border vulnerable eyes. The family unit, of whatever composition, strengthens the likelihood of successful reproduction, the passing on of genetic material, of survival. But what if trust within the family disappears? If competition exceeds normal limits, creates insurmountable friction, maybe even peril? Recently, one of Butch's fellow security guards had gone home and shot his wife, then himself. That woman had trusted her husband, thought that he would sweetly groom her and feed her foodstuffs. I knew how harshly Professor Matthews would criticize my expanding tendency for anthropomorphism, my comparisons between Corvus and the human animal. Still, I was at last thinking, wandering. It was a good sign. Crows mate for life, although it does not stop them from mating with others from time to time. I have observed mated pairs interacting throughout the year, not just during mating season. They call to each other softly, and although they are already paired, committed, 
In the spring, I have seen males diving and rolling in the air above their females, still and always trying to impress, to win her over yet again. Crows do not take each other for granted. That's a passage from The Atomic Weight of Love, a debut novel from Elizabeth Church. We have Elizabeth Church with us for the hour. Elizabeth Church, a beautiful passage, um, and though Meridian's professor would discourage anthropomorphism, I, I think as readers we enjoy it, and it, it's, it's kind of sweet. Those, those they, I guess they do they mate for life. <clears throat> they do mate for life, yes, and um, certainly the crows not only bring her Meridian scientific pleasure, but they also teach her and about human relationships and help her to mirror her, her own life and try to understand what's going on in her world. Mm-hmm. And you talk about trust in that, uh, trust and intimacy, yeah. that, you know, the kind of the, they're bound up uh, with each other. And, of course, she's lacking that in her, in her marriage. Well, and Alden's no, no longer soaring in the skies above her, doing yeah. loop-de-loops to impress her. Right. <laughs> Uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to bring in uh, another character. This uh, sort of brings um, Meridian to a, a crisis in her marriage. She meets a much younger man, a Vietnam veteran, um, and uh, sort of looks at the sacrifices she was making in her, her marriage and, uh, and what her potential might be. We'll talk a bit about that following this break. I'm Connor Rivers, producer of Access Utah here at Utah Public Radio. Alongside my fellow producers, Krista Black and Amy Kobabe, and our host, Tom Williams, we work to bring you stories and discussion about things happening here in our community. If you have comments, questions, or even show ideas, please call 1-800-826-1495 or email us at upraxcess at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, is the American dream still a reality? You're twice as likely to realize the American dream if you're growing up in Canada rather than the U.S. If we had realized how traumatic the pace of change would have been, we would have had much better policies in place. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Elizabeth Church, author of The Atomic Weight of Love. It's her debut novel. Elizabeth Church grew up in Los Alamos. Her father worked for the Manhattan Project. Um, and she says uh, this novel uh, comes out of her wondering about the women of Los Alamos, the, the wives uh, who had married these, uh, these scientists and, uh, and uh, their struggle, their, their sacrifices. Also wondering about uh, her mother, her, uh, her mother's mother, her aunts. Um, and it's a sweep of history. At the beginning of the book, we heard the passage, uh, Meridian Wallace, who's the central character, is uh, 87. And we look back on, on her life. Let's bring in now uh, a caller, uh, Jennifer Invernal. Jennifer, uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? Uh, I can. Thanks for being patient with us while you got, we got oh, you on no, here. Oh, no, that's fine. <laughs> I am assuming you have an intern and a weird phone system, and they're all and trying to get used to a new phone system. <laughs> that, yeah, that's, that, that's right. Anyway, this, this novel that I've got to get my hands on is taking me back to Hyde Park, um, and I, I kind of wondered if... Uh, 
if the author had done some research in Hyde Park, just hang around that place because it's kind of, oh, it's kind of Scott Egghead's the Richard P. Feynman types, you know, and um, and if you read Richard P. Feynman, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. You can see that there is an underlying uh, sexist bent amongst these, um, you know, they're engineers and they're uh, physicists and things like that. But I remember being so frustrated uh, with all these little kids and... Richard pursued his medical career while he was teaching at the medical school. And he came right out and said to me, Jennifer, you're here to serve me. And I remember how frustrated I was because all the women were told, you have to be good at this one thing. Staying home, taking care of the kids, cooking, you know, you have to do that. But a man is encouraged to go uh, pursue, you know, whatever field he feels called to or whatever and it's just inherently unfair how would men like it if they were told you're going to stay home you're going to mow the lawn you're going to fix the plumbing you're going to work on the electrical problems and you're going to raise the kids and she's going to go pursue you know in some rare instances this does happen but the idea is even Brigham Young said think of what women could do if they had wives Okay, <laughs> and so a lot, a lot was sacrificed, and the question is, was it really worth it? You know, in mm-hmm. some cases, maybe; in some cases, maybe not. But somebody's got to raise the kids, you know. So uh, anyway, that's just my little two cents worth. Oh, but thank I, you. Thank you. I'm glad you wrote this novel. Great, really yeah. Super. Okay. Yeah. L- look right, it up. Thanks. It's good, good to read. Uh, Jennifer Bye-bye. and Vernal, thank you. Appreciate that. Great. Elizabeth Church, uh, your your response. Uh, Jennifer made a, a few points there. Well, I, I I think Feynman and the others were very much of their time. And so, well, yes, a lot of the statements absolutely enrage me. Um, they were of their time. They were not atypical. Um, it, it's interesting. I'm reading there's a new biography of Charlotte, Charlotte Bronte out. And there are quotes in the biography of Charlotte Bronte raging against the fact that men could do all the things that they could do and that her world was supposed to be so small. So women have been raging about this for a very long time. And and I have to say, part of what I was seeing in the schools in New Mexico in my lawyer, wearing my lawyer hat, was young girls who couldn't appreciate the opportunities that they had that even my generation hadn't had. And, uh, for example, New Mexico, at, at my last um, count, had not only the highest rate of first teen pregnancies, but also of second teen pregnancies. So I think it's an ongoing problem that girls can throw away opportunity at the same time as they are denied opportunity. Mm. I want to uh, read a paragraph that, uh, that you wrote. I uh, found this at algonquin.com, your publisher's uh, website. Uh, you say, I've been given rich op- opportunities in life, largely due to the cultural changes demanded by my generation, and I've become increasingly aware of the limitations placed on the women who preceded me. I wonder what they could have been. I fear for girls now who sometimes seem determined to throw away with both hands advances that have been so hard won. This book is for these these women. Uh, so that last, that's the second to last sentence, uh, fear for the girls who sometimes seem determined to throw away with both hands advances that have been so hard won. What, what are you talking about there? 
Well, that is largely re- relating to what I, I was seeing going around the schools in New Mexico. Um, since I don't have children, that was, that was largely um, the context in which I was seeing young girls. And, and to see them opting automatically for, um, for motherhood and marriage and becoming pregnant at 14, 15 years old, um, I'm not saying motherhood's a bad thing by any means. Um, what I'm saying is, once again, I'm going to go back to my make a conscious choice. And to see, um, I mean, there are so many careers open to women now. Um, so many careers. I mean, space archaeologist. I, I, that's just phenomenal that that even exists. And, and it's a woman who's pushing that boundary and creating that opportunity. Um, there's so much out there. The world is so rich. And not to grab hold and experience it just breaks my heart. Mm. Just breaks my heart. Do you think that that's maybe that's the, the danger of advances? Uh, maybe some younger women are, are taking it for granted. I do. I do. And I, I, part of the reason, and that's been um, um, reinforced in, in reading, you know, reviews that people write about my book, Individuals, which I'm going to stop doing, by the way, because <laughs> it can be brutal. But um, some, some younger women have, have, have thought that Alden is too autocratic. He's completely unbelievable for that reason. And all I can say is people of my generation laugh knowingly and say, oh, no, 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 that was very much the case, hmm. very much the case. So tell me about, uh, I think his name is Clay, right, Vietnam veteran? Um, yeah who uh, later on um, Meridian uh, meets. He's, he's younger than, than she is. Uh, but he, he sort of represents for her, I guess, uh, with, the, with this new age, you know, um, and, and freedom, I guess. What, what does he represent? I think of Clay as a catalyst. Uh, I think we all have them in our lives, whether we recognize it or not. Um, he is what comes into the chemical formula of her life and changes how the elements are interacting with each other. He questions her. She actually listens to him and tries to answer his questions. So he brings in the way women's lives are changing. He challenges her uh, rote thinking. Um, For example, she has a right to know how much is in their bank account, their bank account. Um, Alden's been giving her a household allowance, and um, she she doesn't know how much money they have. She doesn't know how much money he makes. Um, And those kinds of questions Clay asks her. He pushes her to come outside of her boundaries, and he... He lets her have ambition and independence. One of the uh, th- themes of the book is, of course, birds and flight. And uh, Meridian says she fell in love with Alden as, uh, as he explained to her the scientific principles behind uh, flight, flight of birds, uh, etc. Clay says something very interesting. He says we have to take flight. Emphasis on take, right? We have to, we have to choose flight. Yes. It's not given to us. You cannot sit passively back and wait for it to happen. Um, I think at, at one point Meridian says it's not served up on some pretty parsley-clad platter. Um, you have to be brave. You have to be brave. 
what does what does taking flight mean mean then to you? I guess you you made this big change a little later in in your life. Is that is that what it means? Absolutely. For me, that is what it meant. It meant having mustering the courage to, um, if not completely silence the 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 voice of of perhaps reason and doubt, at least to minimize it so that I could literally spread my wings and fly. And I've been very lucky. Um, I got my book published, and it's been well-received. But even if I hadn't managed to do that, my initial goal was to write and finish a novel, which was something I had not managed to do in all of the years where I had kept writing. Um, but it, it meant some sacrifice, and that's part of taking flight, I think, is to to set a goal and say, for example, as I did, I'm going to sell my beautiful, elegant home, and I'm going to move to a much smaller house, uh, get rid of the mortgage, and help myself financially that way. Uh, I think we can build in all kinds of excuses, and I think what I would say is, for me, the catalyst was my husband's death, and I think what defines us as, as people is how we respond to the catalysts in our lives the choices we make in response to those those catalysts. So is, is that the is that the message you hope readers take away about about taking I flight? Do, what, what do you hope they take away? I I just have a, such a longing for people to say to themselves, what is my dream that I have held in abeyance for far too long and what am I going to do about it? Hmm. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm, I'm curious about the birds. Is that, was that an interest of yours, or did you have to research this for because Meridian is an ornithologist? I've always had an interest in birds. I'm not so much identification. I'm I'm not necessarily very good at that, but I find their behavior fascinating. Um, Los Alamos is pretty much inundated with crows and ravens. It's it's quite a hot spot for them, and I did have to do a great deal of research about crows so that I could make this believable, and I actually uh, reference a book in the back uh, that was of primary help to me in that regard. And then I had to try to figure out how to make uh, Meridian's research and observations um, current for her and not put in many of the wonderful, wonderful things that are coming out about the incredible intelligence of crows. They're their ability to, for example, they have facial recognition, and not only can they recognize individual faces and, you know, uh, associate good and bad attributes with those faces, but they can teach that to their young. Um, so we're learning all kinds of wonderful things, and I had to resist the temptation to put all that in the book. Right. Maybe a future book. Uh, by the way, just about a minute left, uh, each chapter begins with a collective noun of birds, so it's a party of jays, a charm of hummingbirds, etc., uh, etc. Et that's it's always been fascinating to me. A parliament of owls. I don't know how people come up with these, but it, but it's very interesting and it's very literary as well. They're they're quite wonderful, and actually, they, a friend had sent them to me years ago and said, "Aren't these wonderful?" And I had kept them, thinking someday I'm going to write a book, and this will be the chapter heading. So. Uh, what, are you thinking about your next book, or is it too soon? I, I am polishing uh, the next book to send to my agent, that then, who then sends it on. Uh, it takes place in Viva Las Vegas, the okay. late 60s, early 70s. Always interesting to, to go to Las Vegas, or, you know, literally. 
so, especially back in time for me. It, it was an interesting time back then. We'll look forward to that. Uh, Elizabeth Church, her debut novel is out now. It's The Atomic Weight of Love. Elizabeth Church, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. The ambulance business does well when lots of people have to be rushed to the hospital. So this, from an ambulance guy, is interesting. How can I help prevent the 911 call? I'm Kai Rizdal. Scheduling paramedic visits. We'll have that story for you. The numbers from Wall Street and the rest of the day's business news as well. Next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you to everyone who submitted designs to our annual UPR Mug Art Contest. We had awesome work come in from all across the state. Now that our submissions have closed, though, it's your turn to vote for your favorite design. Which one do you think depicts the community of UPR best? Your vote will determine the winner, and their design will be printed on this year's UPR Mug, available during our spring pledge drive. So what would you like to see on your mug? Tell us by going to upr.org and casting your vote. listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.